<clears throat> at a roller coaster for a long time. Okay, you're standing in line for this incredible ride that you're excited to ride, and you get up to the line, <clears throat> to the end of the line, and, and you finally get to go in. You get to sit down in the coaster, and you start putting the harness on, and they're coming by and checking to make sure it's locked, and then they're kind of giving you final instructions. That's kind of what I feel like with, with this book of Romans, because I've known we're, we're going to be teaching it since April, and I started kind of reading and studying and thinking through this since May, and I feel like we're still introducing it. And, and actually tonight, um, we're going to finish Paul's long introduction in Romans chapter 1. So if you have a Bible, um, go ahead and open up to Romans chapter 1. Uh, we're going to be in verses 14 through 17 here in just a bit. But what Paul's going to do, he's going to finish his introduction. It's the longest of Paul's introductions uh, of any of his letters, maybe because he hasn't been to this church, he's never visited this church, and so he's trying to like just introduce himself and what he's all about and what he's, and what he's going to tell them about. And so he does, but in, in these, these final verses that we're going to study tonight, and especially in verses 16 and 17, he gives kind of his dominant thought, his main theme for the whole book of Romans is tonight. And so we're going to get to unpack that tonight. And what you'll see Paul do as he introduces this theme, this major theme, which is the gospel. That's kind of his main theme. And so if you're here tonight, and maybe you grew up in a uh, Christian home, but was something that you went to on Sundays once in a while, and, and, and you're not quite sure what you believe, and if you believe, um, or if you're here and, and, and you, you, you for sure don't believe, this, would be a, this is going to be a great night to kind of hear what Paul thinks about the gospel. Um, what, so what he's going to do is he's going to, he's going to help us see how the gospel answers two really big questions. Two really big questions. First question is this. How can we be rescued from our sin? How can we be rescued from our sin? Another way of saying that is how can we be reconciled to God? It's kind of two in one. How can we be rescued from our sin and reconciled to God? That's one question. It's a big question. He's going to help us see how the gospel answers that. Um, and then he's also going to help us see another, answer another question. The gospel answers another question, which is this. Can God be trusted? Can God be trusted? Now, the first one may not surprise you. Most, most people go to Romans... And they, they kind of assume, if they know anything about Romans, they know that the Romans is going to hit it hard how, how we're rescued from our sin, how we're reconciled to God. But that second question, how God can be trusted, is, might surprise you. And, and, and actually, I'm realizing more and more that this is a major idea that Paul is trying to, major question that Paul is trying to answer. And, and so we're going to get into it tonight. So, are you buckled in? Are you buckled in? Great. Then let me give you some instructions before we jump into Romans. Okay? And, and so you, if you came in, there should be a card like this on your seat or around you somewhere. Go ahead and grab it out because I want to, I want to walk through this with you. So if you were here last week, um, Drew got up and taught through the first 13 verses of Romans. And then I got up and did a little kind of an uh, applicational reflection at the end. That's kind of the, the nature of, of how we're going to do teach Romans. We're just going to, the first person is going to get up and kind of walk through verse by verse. We call that exegetical. We're going to walk through and, and draw out of the text what is being said. 
and what it means. And then, and then we're going to take a little break, and then the second person is going to get up and point to some bigger themes or some bigger theological ideas or some applicational points for us to kind of take home to help us see how this, this fits into our life, how this makes sense for us. And so this is how we understand the Bible. This is how we interpret the Bible. Um, I, I said last week that one of, our, one of the best things that we feel like we can do for you, one of the greatest gifts that we can give you, is to f- help you figure out what to do with this thing. Is to help you study this thing. And to help you know how to, how to in- understand it and interpret it and apply it to your life on your own. We, we, we don't want you to have to rely on someone else to tell you what this says and what it means. We want you to grow in learning how to do that. So, this card is, is essentially... Drew and I both took a class in college called Principles of Interpretation. Another fancy word for that is hermeneutics. But... This is basically that semester wrapped up and put on a little postcard. Um, what you have here is, is really, really helpful. And I would encourage you to keep this in your Bible, tape it to the back of your Bible, inside or something. And, and every time you go to read the Bible, just kind of be, remind yourself of this process. So let me, I'm going to walk through this process real quick. It's on your card. And then I'm going to demonstrate it to you as I kind of teach tonight and help you see what I'm doing as I teach through these, these verses. But... So the first step, when, when trying to understand, um, actually let me back up, let me, let me say this, because I think this needs to be said. The reason why we need to, the reason why we need to figure out and we need instructions on how to in, understand, interpret, and apply the Bible is a couple reasons I'm going to mention tonight, and I guarantee you we'll mention others in the future. First is this, it's a difficult book to understand. Like, there's 2,000, at least... 2,000 years of history in between the writers of this book and us. And they didn't write it from our continent or our country. They wrote it on a different continent, continent in a different country with different languages and different values and different, all kinds of different things. Humans are the same. Cultures, languages, ideas, values, all those things, different. So you have 2,000 years of history in between us and them that makes it challenging you also have the fact that um, the fact that that most of us don't uh, have a working base knowledge of some some foundational things, and so sometimes we're operating at a disadvantage. If if we don't know the language, we're operating at a disadvantage. We have to rely on someone else to interpret for us. If you have an English Bible, you have relied on a group of people that have sat down and take the original language and interpret it for you. And so we're kind of at their mercy. We're, 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 we're just reading the words that they've interpreted for us. And so that's, that, that, that puts us at a little bit of a challenge. So there's some challenges to us understanding this thing. And I want us to be honest about it. If you've ever been reading the Bible and say, yeah, I don't know what that means. Or been, or been confused with how to interpret something. Um, I've been there. I've been frustrated. Like, how am I supposed to know what the heck that means? <laughs> it seems important. I, but I have no idea. So this, this process can be really, really helpful. The other reason that we think it's important is because this is our source of truth and authority. We believe that the Bible is our source of truth and authority, meaning truth is not found within us. So because you're at a church thing, it's going to be real tempting for you to nod your head and go, yeah, all right, that's right, truth is, not found. Truth is found in the Bible. You step out of these walls, 
you get onto that campus or really anywhere else in this world, that is not a popular idea. Everybody's going to tell you, truth is within you. you your truth is inside you. Look within you. And I'm here to say, we don't believe that. We believe the Bible actually is a source of truth and, 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 and an absolute truth that we can trust and believe in and, it, and therefore it is our authority. So when we teach the Bible, we're teaching it as if it is our authority. Um, and so I've, there's lots, of, lots that I could say about that. But um, it's also not something that you and I can figure out. It's not truth. God's truth isn't something that you and I, apart from this thing, can just know and figure out. It has to be revealed to us. This is why God has, we believe, revealed it to us, revealed Himself to us. And so this book stands outside of us, and yet we believe has authority over us, and therefore must be approached with humility. So those are a couple reasons why we think it's important for you to have some basic understanding of how to interpret these things. Because we think we, we believe there's a lot at stake here. So, step one. When, whenever we sit down to read the Bible, what we, first, what we first go to is, okay, what's the author's intended meaning? What is the author trying to communicate? Okay, what was going on in that time? And who are they writing to? And, and what did they understand the meaning to be? So the author's intended meaning. So we ask the question, what is it? What did it mean to them? That's the first question we ask. What did it mean to them? Before we ever want to figure out what it means to us, we've got to start with what it meant to them. And we do that by understanding two types of context. Okay, literary context, historical context. And I'm going to, I'm going to demonstrate what, what those are tonight. The second step, after we kind of understand what it means to them, then we move up to this idea of like, okay, then how does that, what is a principle that applies to all people at all time? Regardless of your culture and your time, and what's a general, what's a prince, a timeless truth? Okay, so what did it mean to all people all times? And then, the, then we can move down to, okay, now how do we apply that to us? What does it mean to us? Okay, and, and there's, when we get down to this application side, then we can see the implications of, okay, well, here's what it means to all people, but here's, how it's, here's the implications in my own life. Here's how it's significant to me specifically. Okay. So that's where we can get specific with, with application. But we believe this process is really, really helpful and will, and will um, save you from all kinds of, one, taking things out of context and misinterpreting and, 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 and misusing the Bible, but also save you from believing a bunch of really bad ideas. So that's a big deal. So let me demonstrate as I walk through these verses in Romans chapter 1, starting at verse 14. I'm going to read all of them. And then I'm going to kind of go back through and, and talk through each verse. Starting verse 14. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For, it is, for, it, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. There it is. Four verses, jam-packed, full of stuff. Let me, let me get started. Paul has three 
I am statements. Did you notice them? 14, 15, 16 starts with this phrase, I am. So, I am, he says, under obligation is the first one. Um, the word obligation literally means debt. It literally means debt. So, um, so what I'm doing right now is, I'm, to understand what Paul means, I've got to understand the words he's using. And the word in Greek, I don't know the word in Greek, but the word in Greek literally is debt. But the English translators go, that doesn't make sense to us in, in America. I am under debt. That is, we don't get that. So obligation, that's the idea he's getting at. So that's, that's why they interpreted that word. But the word literally means debt, and the idea is this. There's two kinds of debt. One would be, okay, Matt, let's say you give me $1,000, so I'm in, you loan me $1,000, so I'm in debt to you $1,000. That's one kind of debt. Another kind of debt is, Matt, you want to be generous to Taylor. And so you give me $1,000 to give to Taylor. So now I'm in debt to Taylor to give him that $1,000. So when I give him that $1,000, then, then I've kind of freed my debt, if you will. And that's the, that's the kind of, that second kind of debt is the kind of debt that Paul is describing. He has received such an incredible gift from God. Um, his sins have been covered. His, um, he has been made righteous before. And so he wants to. And he feels this obligation. He feels this debt, this burden to tell others. To, to in a sense, kind of release other people's debt to sin. And so he feels this burden to travel around to anyone and everyone. That's the obligation he's describing. And then he says, then he has these two contrasting groups. Okay? Greeks and barbarians. Some of your translations may say non-Greeks. The, the word literally is barbarian. And, and then he says wise and foolish. Why does, he, why does he use these two terms? Ultimately what he's doing is classifying human, human humanity. He's, he's putting, um, and th this was a common thing. We don't like this in our day, but this is a common thing. Greeks, they thought of themselves as a little more superior, a greater language, a greater culture. And then there was everyone else. And so to Greeks, there was Greeks and there was barbarians. Everyone else. Barbarian, by the way, wasn't a derogatory term when they, when they were kind of originally using it. It was just a term used to describe anyone that doesn't speak Greek. Uh, Romans had the f same feeling. They saw themselves as superior, and so there were Romans, and then there were everyone else. Jews, same thing. There were Jews, and there were who? Well, Gentiles, specifically. Everyone else. But Gentiles is kind of how they refer to him. Sometimes they refer to him as Greeks, Jews and Greeks. So this was just a way for, for certain groups to kind of understand humanity. Okay? Um, but it's interesting that Paul's talking to Romans, and he says Greeks and barbarians. In other words, there's Greeks, and then everyone else, including you Romans, are barbarians. So I don't know. We don't know. So this is where I can say, I don't know exactly why Paul's saying what he's saying, but he could be saying it to kind of a little bit of like, hey, by the way, you're not so special, Romans. Um, he also, when he says wise and foolish, he's kind of speaking more to intellectual, right? So he could be saying Greeks and barbarians, wise and foolish, to kind of describe more of a, all ethnic groups and all intellectual abilities. Either way, he's saying he's obligated to both. He's obligated to everyone, is kind of the idea. Okay, the second uh, I am statement. So I am eager, he says, I am eager to preach the gospel. The word eager literally means 
passionate or fierce. Uh, it's used three times in the Bible, and the other two times it's, it's used as willing. And willing doesn't really carry the, the emphasis that this had. Eager is a little bit better of a word. But he said, I am eager um, to, preach the, to preach the gospel. So he's not like a simple mailman just carrying letters and, oh, hey, by the way, I got this for you. It's the gospel. Here you go. And, oh, yeah, here's one for you too. No, he, he not only feels a burden, but he is excited and passionate, and it is a joy for him to, to share this. So he's, he's eager. So I want you to imagine any engineering students, okay, engineering students, Okay, and then engineering seniors. Raise your hand if you're senior. Okay, a few of you. So imagine senior engineers. Okay, you're in your I, senior design is a thing, right? Kind of somewhat important. So let's say you have a senior design group. I don't know how it works. I imagine you have a group. Okay, you have a whatever. And and a representative from ConocoPhillips, the the president of ConocoPhillips, comes comes to you, and says, Hey, I, I want you to deliver a message to all of your group. I've heard about your group. And we want all of your group. In fact, we're giving you a carte blanche um, hiring process. Here's the deal. You guys are going to have a job when you get done. You're going to have a signing bonus. And you're going to get to pick wherever you want to work in our company. And you're going to get to pick whatever you want to do because we so believe in you. And they give that message to you. How soon are you going to tell others is the idea. Are you going to be eager? Are you going to passionately do it? Are you going to do it with fierce are you going to be like, oh, no, yeah, whenever I run into them, I'll let them know? Or, hey, next time in class, I'll let them know. I would assume, like, immediately a group text goes out, emergency meeting, you, will have, you guys have to hear what happened. Come, come now, find out. This is like, especially for those of you who are, trying, who are getting ready to finish and you don't know where you're going, this is huge. And, and it, so it, I think it carries a little bit of the weight that you see Paul have, this burden and this passion to share the gospel. And he says, I am not, this, the, next, um, the next statement he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It's an interesting phrase. I don't know if you, you've, like me, you've probably read that a hundred times. I don't know. Maybe twice. And, and we just kind of take, I, I've never really thought, why does he say it that way? Why does he have to say he's not ashamed? What does he, what does he mean? So this is where I'm here. I'm trying to figure out why did Paul say, say it this way? And the truth is, I don't exactly know why. Um, here, but we do know some things. We do know Paul sometimes has, has tried to explain, um, like in, in 1 Corinthians, when he, when he came to Corinth. He said, the first time I came, I came and I was real meek and I was real quiet and I didn't, you know, this and that. So maybe Paul has been ashamed of the gospel and he's trying to confess and let them know that he's not going to do it this time. Maybe he's feeling a little bit of conviction. Maybe it's on him. Maybe he knows he's heard that they have been ashamed. See, in their culture, we talked about this last week, um, Christianity has, has hijacked the word Lord and good news and made it our own, where those words were originally kind of used to describe for Caesar. And so in Roman culture, to use those terms was... Um, blasphemy. And, and so, maybe they've been ashamed of the gospel in Roman culture. And therefore, he's saying, he's reminding them, I'm not ashamed, and you shouldn't be either. He could just be, he just could be a, a, a backwards way of saying, I am proud of the gospel. Instead of saying, I am not ashamed, he's saying, I am proud of the gospel. I'm proud of its heritage. 
I'm proud of its power. And so he actually goes on to use that very word here in the next phrase. Um, For it is the power of God for salvation. The word power in the Greek is dunamis. What does that look like? Dynamite. That's where we get the word dynamite. So, so Paul chooses this word um, to describe the, um, the gospel. It is the power of God. It is an explosive thing. And it has the power to do two things, specifically, he's going to get into. Okay, Here's the two things he does, that the, that the gospel does. I'm going to spend a little bit of time on this. First one is salvation for everyone who believes. Okay, That's, that's the very next thing. Salvation for everyone who believes. The word salvation in the Bible... Um, we, we like to use it, typically, if you've heard it in church, most likely you've heard it referred to as, you know, get saved, someone's got saved, or someone was saved, it means they've accepted Christ and they're going to heaven. The, 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 the Bible has a fuller picture of this, and we're going to get into this more specifically in chapter 5, but, um, but he says, but, but the word literally has this present and future um, deliverance a rescue from current and, and for future eternity is, is the idea. The gospel has the power to rescue us from sin and, res- and reconcile us to God. That's the answer to that first question. How do we get reconciled? How, how, how are we rescued from our sin and, and reconciled to God? The answer, the gospel. The gospel is the answer to that. So that's kind of where I'm going here. I'm saying, so this is, this is what he's saying. Salvation, the power of God to bring salvation to everyone who believes. And up here I'm saying, the gospel, what he's saying is the gospel has power to, to reconcile us to him and to rescue us from our sin. That's the timeless truth. Um, and then he says an interesting phrase. Uh, first for the Jew and then the Greek. Why would he have to bring that up? Again, as a Jewish man, he understands the heritage of the gospel. And so what, what I think Paul's doing here is he's making it very clear. Listen, we're not, the gospel isn't about just, oh, everything before Jesus doesn't matter. You know, take that whole from Malachi back to Genesis. You don't really need to read it. You just need to be a New Testament Christian. That's not at all what Paul's doing. He's saying, no. This came first to the Jews. This actually started with Abraham. Then to Israel, and then to Jesus, and now it's going to everyone. But make no mistake, this started with the Jews. I think that's ultimately what he's describing. Um, He's saying, he is not ashamed of this gospel, and he is eager to preach it because of how indebted he is to God. So the second thing it does is going to be in, in verse 17. The second thing that um, the power that the gospel has power to do is reveal the righteousness of God. Okay? So Paul has revealed that his main theme of the letter is the gospel, but here he reveals that it reveals the righteousness of God. Capiche? So, this phrase, um, unbeknownst to me, <laughs> has a lot of debate surrounding it. Okay? So, 
there's, there's a couple ways to read this phrase. The righteousness of God. What, is he, what specifically is Paul talking about? Is he saying that the gospel reveals a, a righteousness that God grants to, to those who believe? To us who believe? So is, is in other words, is he saying the, that the gospel reveals how we are made righteous? It reveals this thing that we receive? Or is he saying that the gospel reveals God's own righteousness? Like it points to his righteousness, his faithfulness and integrity. Um, so that's, that's the, there's, people break them up into different categories, but that's, those are the two categories that I can kind of simplify. Um, so the reason that, the reason that this is a debate is because both of these themes are true, and both of these themes can be traced throughout Romans. So, so the question is, which one is it? And I think it is actually one. As if you've been here enough, you might think I'm going to say, oh, it's both. Um, actually, I'm not. I'm going to say I think it's one. And I think Paul is specifically saying it's one for a few reasons. And the one that I think he's describing is the second one, which is God's righteousness. That What he's describing is that the gospel reveals God's righteousness to us. It's, it's like how righteous He is. How? How does God's righteousness, how is it revealed in this gospel? And, and, and let me give you a couple ways. The word righteous carries with it two ideas. One is legal. So someone's declared right or declared innocent or declared free. So righteous. The other is covenantal. So one is legal, one is covenantal. So um, the idea of fulfilling His promises. So throughout, throughout the Old Testament, you can kind of see these themes uh, of, of legal or, or covenantal. So, in other words, what I think is happening here is I think the Gospel reveals God's integrity. So I'm going to give you two things that it reveals about His, his, faith, his righteousness. One is His integrity as, as one who judges a world with justice. Okay, and we're going to get specifically into that in chapter 3. Um, but it reveals God's integrity. That God is a just God. Okay? That He recognizes that um, sin and hurt, and, and sin causes and does damage and hurts. If you've ever been hurt by anyone, if you've ever been damaged by sin personally or by anyone else, you know that this is true. And because God is a righteous God, He must punish sin. He must um, display His justice. And so the Gospel reveals God's integrity in carrying out that justice. The second thing it reveals about God's um, righteousness is God's faithfulness as one who promised to save the world through, through Abraham and through Israel and ultimately through Jesus. So His integrity and His faithfulness. In the Gospel of Jesus, God reveals, in other words, the word reveals, uncovers, He, he unveils something that wasn't known before. That's what that word kind of means. Um, he, he reveals how He has always planned to save the world. Um, this is what God has been doing all along. This is what His promises have been pointing to. And this is His conclusion, albeit strange, to to hang the Son of God on a cross and for Him to conquer death and rise to again. 
So it's a, it's a strange conclusion. None of us would have figured this out. But it is his conclusion to God fulfilling his loyalty to his covenant of Israel with Israel. So again, the gospel proves that God can be trusted. So not only does the gospel, um, in the gospel do we see that we can be reconciled with God and rescued from our sin, but we also see that in the gospel that God can be trusted. That's the timeless principle. That God can be trusted because of the gospel. Now, again, I think I said this last week, and, and, or maybe I didn't, and maybe it's just in my head. Sometimes I say a lot of things in here that don't actually come out here. My, my family reminds me all the time. Um, If you could just stick with me, stick with us for several weeks, because um, as much as I would love to just say, here's the gospel in a nutshell, the, the Bible doesn't really do that. And Paul definitely doesn't do that in Romans. We're going to start next week in 118. And, it's going to, and to, to see the full thing, we're going to go through all the way through chapter 8. And now I recognize there's 9 through 16. There's a whole other half of the book that is going to be more implications of. But if you could just stick with us through this, you're going you're to hear the full picture. So, uh, and then he says this weird phrase. Um, it is from faith for faith. The righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. So I'm, I'm back here in this going, what? What does he mean by that? And um, some translations say faith to faith. Some translations say from faith from first to last. Um, there's lots of different variations. So, but the, word, the words literally are from faith for or to faith, depending on how you translate that word. Um, so here's some options. It's an interesting phrase, but here's some options where I think it's happening. He can either be saying that God, he's describing God's faithfulness leading to us having faith in Him, he could be just saying that it's from faith of old to a new faith. He could be saying that, that it's always been, um, that it's always been about faith. He's going to show that to us in, in chapter 4 with Abram, Abraham. Always been about faith, and now it's going to continue to be about faith. Or he's saying that faith is, that's what I just said, faith has always been the plan, and faith will continue to be the plan. So, there's a couple options. I don't know which one's it, but... Um, basically, he's saying it's a lot about it's it's about faith. Faith is central to this. Um, Drew and I were described talking, joking earlier today that we wonder if sometimes Paul would come down and be like, "What are you spending time on? I don't know. What did I say? I don't know. It's about faith. Quit wasting time." Anyway, so I think that's what might happen. But and then he quotes this verse in Habakkuk two that the righteous shall live by faith. Um. This is a first Old Testament quote. And, and what I want you to kind of recognize, whenever you see a, a quotation in the New Testament of, of the Old, an Old Testament quote, and especially in Romans, I want you to see that, that what Paul is doing is he's connecting old with new. He's connecting Jesus with what's been said. And so what God has done in Christ is consistent in the Old Testament and what God has done in Christ is fulfilled, um, fulfills the Old Testament. So, the context of, Hebrew, uh, of Habakkuk 2, it's Habakkuk 2.4 is the verse, and I think it will probably come up again in chapter 4, I, I believe. He quotes it in Galatians as well, I believe. 
Um, but the, the, the context of that verse is kind of interesting. You can read all of Habakkuk. There's really only a few, a few chapters. But it appears, so this statement is given whenever it appears that God has abandoned His people. When He has seemed to have broken His promises. But then God says, the righteous shall live by faith. In other words, what He's saying is, those who trust in Me will live. And He's telling Habakkuk, hey listen, I know I'm going to hand you over to the Babylonians and it's going to look like I've abandoned you. It's going to look like I've broken my promise. But trust me, if you trust me, you will live. Those who trust in me will live. It's kind of the idea. Uh, that's just kind of interesting. Here's something else, I, a little nugget that I thought was really interesting. Um, the word faith appears 25 times in chapters 1 through 4. Okay? So chapters 1 through 4, faith appears 25 times. And in chapters 5 through 8, it appears twice. Um, the word life, or live, in, the, in chapters 1 through 4, appears like two or maybe three times, depending on how you translate something. But then in chapters 5 through 8, appears 23 to 25 times. It's flip-flopped. Isn't that interesting? So like, the first four chapters... Paul is reminding us that, that, it, that it is by faith that we are made righteous before God. Um, and then in chapters five through five through eight, he's reminding us that those who are faithful and righteous will find true life in Christ. And so I think that's pretty cool, and I think that's 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 where we're going to be over these next several weeks. So let me let me in, leave with this question: The gospel is a big deal. Um, but who is the gospel for? Who is the gospel for? That's a question I'm going to leave you with, and then we'll take a little break, and then Drew will get up and hopefully answer that question. And ready? Break. All right, back. I have your attention. We are uh, now going to move through the next phase of this process. So uh, Scott has walked us through to help us understand Paul's intended meaning, what he was getting at. That's why we explore the, the Greek and the background and the context and all those things. And then we've made the transition or we're kind of making it into some of these timeless principles that he's drawn out for you. So these are principles that apply whether you're in Rome in the first century or whether you're in Stillwater in the 21st century. That is that the gospel has power. It is the power of God. That the gospel reveals the righteousness of God. That God is faithful to his covenant, that he is just and legal. So we're seeing some of these principles played out. So now what we're going to do, and there's multiple principles usually in, in each passage that we can kind of look to. Now what we're going to do is we're going to grab one of them and kind of focus on that. Um, when we find one of these up here, a lot of times one of the best things to do is start to compare that to other texts in the Bible to see, all right, what does not just Romans 1 say about it, what do other texts in the Scriptures say about it? So we can get a bigger picture of that idea or that truth, and then we grab that and we walk down into this third spot and we start to talk through what the implications are for us, what the significance of this is, and then how we begin to apply it to our lives. So that's what we're going to do over this next section here. Um, first, really important question. How many of you guys remember the show and or watched the show Power Rangers when you were a kid? All right, cool. I was really hoping I wasn't too dated. All right, so 
the Power Rangers, aka technical title Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. All right. Um, you guys may watch, I don't know what version you watch. There's like nine different editions and versions that came out. But I watched the, well, sort of watched the original version. Like the very first time Mighty Morphin Power Rangers came out was 1995, six, I think. Um, I was sixth, seventh grade, somewhere in there, and I remember it was after school on Fox, and I remember Fox, before it came out, started showing the commercials for this new show that they were going to set out, and I remember seeing the commercials and just having my mind blown. This is going to be the coolest thing ever. Uh, it's ninjas in spandex with motorcycle helmets. How, like, how much cooler can that get? And it's teenagers who like just go to school, they go about their normal high school, and then when a monster comes to town to attack it, they turn into ninjas in spandex with motorcycle helmets. And not only that, but they've got these sweet um, like creature plane things that they get to fly around. I think, do we have the, we have the ninjas in uh, spandex? There we go, right there. Uh, Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. Uh, this is original edition before they added uh, the Green Ranger Tommy. He's such a poser, okay? Um, so... This is the original five, and I was so pumped when this show came out, and I remember it coming on, and, and I remember the very first time I watched it after school, and it was them fighting, this is the only villain I remember, um, it was them fighting this, like, pig guy, his name was Pudgy Pig, all right, and there he is, right there, <laughs> literally, it's just like the head of a pig with arms and legs, <laughs> who uses, <laughs> with the giant with a giant helmet on, all right? And this was, and so he comes to town, he comes to cause some problems, so it's, it's morphin' time, right? That's the song, it's morphin' time. They turn into the Power Rangers, they start fighting. Inevitably, I think he gets giant. Like at one point, all the villains get giant. So now, we gotta band together, we gotta get our whatever things. I didn't watch that much of it, and I'll explain why in just a little bit. Um, they, they get their machines together, and then they, like, bond them together into the super transformer guy, right? And then they attack Pudgy Pig, and they take him out. And I'm like, my mind is blown. These guys are doing flips. They got these awesome machines. They've got this transformer thing. This is so cool. And I cannot wait to get to school and talk to all my friends about the Power Rangers. And did you see that? It was so awesome. And which one's your favorite? And this guy's who I like. And who do you like? And all this stuff. And so I remember, I get to school the next day. I'm so psyched about it. And I can't remember if it was me who brings up or somebody else. I something i'm like dude did you see did you guys see power rangers and like everybody is like oh yeah dude what a stupid kid show right <laughs> everybody's going so dumb like oh, it's so fake and they're fighting did you see that ridiculous villain and i was all like yeah man that's, <laughs> that's why i was bringing it up i want to talk about how dumb it was with you guys right um and i remember this weird moment in my head going oh, dang it, like, I'm too old for this. And I didn't know I was too old. I didn't know seventh grade was too old to like the Power Rangers, but apparently it is. Um, and I remember being so bummed because it's like, ah, I gotta, I'm not allowed to like watch shows like that. Or if I'm going to, I got to do it secretly, right? Because it's not cool. And for all I know, all my friends were dogging it and then going home and watching it every day. I'm sure they were. Uh, but like this weird thing where it's like, oh, I'm too big for that. I'm out, like, I'm, I've outgrown shows like that and that was kind of a bummer for me but that's like part of life you outgrow things uh, the power rangers unfortunately for me was not the last thing that i outgrew too late all right 
Um, I'm about to show you something I, that I kept hidden for years, uh, but I, I showed it to a pe group of people this summer, and so I just decided it's time. Um, in the 90s, you just need to know, like in the early 90s, there was a particular haircut that was super cool, all right, known as the Chili Bowl, all right? <laughs> And, uh, and so I rocked the chili bowl hardcore, all right? So what you do, you part it down the middle. It's a bowl because it's like shaved all the way to the bowl. You let it hang. But ideally, you're pushing the hair way up and you're shaving way up the sides and then letting the bowl hang down and kind of in front of your face. And it was so cool and I loved it. I loved it so much that I held on to it. Uh, <laughs> uh, that's me my freshman year, um, rocking that bowl cut. Uh, and... Uh, yeah, man, I went through some transformations, dude, for, uh, for a little while. I had a friend who used to, this is totally aside from the point, I had a friend who once looked at, like, my school pictures, and he was like, dude, your school pictures are like the, uh, the evolutionary scale, like the evolutionary <laughs> chart. Well, I think, like, uh, it was rough for a while, but here's the thing. This is 97, all right? This is my freshman year, 97, and I'll just be honest with you, that was way past prime bowl cut years, all right? It was no longer cool to wear the chili bowl haircut. And I think it was shortly after this, seeing this picture, that I realized this isn't cool anymore. Like, I've outgrown this. I've got to move past it. Um, there are things in life that are like that, um, things that we just over time outgrow. And not all of them are lame, like the Power Rangers and chili bowl haircuts, all right? Some of them are actually even good things, that it's just time when you get older to move past. Uh, so, like diapers, right? Um, I'm so grateful for diapers. I got no problem with diapers. Otherwise, my kids would have just been pooping all over the place, right? <laughs> there were some times even with diapers, my kids were pooping all over the place, all right? But I was so grateful for diapers. That's a great thing for a one-year-old. That's a great thing for a two-year-old. Not such a great thing for like a nine-year-old, right? Or a 13-year-old or whatever. There is a point at which you're supposed to move beyond that, when you mature and you grow enough uh, to not do that. Uh, kindergarten. Kindergarten is awesome. It's like the greatest. And if I could go back in time and tell kindergarten, Drew, dude, enjoy these years, man. You don't know how good it is. Uh, you get out at noon every day, at least when I did. You got out at noon um, from, from kindergarten. It was basically just like craft time and recess and maybe a little lesson and then you like got out and stuff like that and kindergarten was great and I loved it and I'm so glad it taught me so many things and yet the stuff that I learned in kindergarten at some point I can't keep learning those things I can't keep doing those things even high school those of you guys who just graduated a few months ago and moved through high school's great the reason you're able to do what you do at OSU is because you were in high school but at some point you can't stay in high school forever it's time to grow up, it's time to move on. And the truth is, when it's time to move on, you actually find it kind of annoying when someone tries to keep you back. Uh, you know how like your, your mom still wants to treat you like you're 13 sometimes? Uh, or still wants you to be like her little boy or her little girl or whatever and all those things. And, and it's almost annoying, mom, I'm not that anymore, right? I've, I've grown up, I've grown beyond that. Uh, or when you get in a class and the teacher is covering things, like your professor is covering things that you learned in like your junior year of high school. And there's nothing more boring and more frustrating than, dude, we know this already. Stop wasting all our time. We know this stuff. We've moved beyond it. We've grown past it. I wonder uh, if any of Paul's readers ever felt this way. See, there's this line in this passage 
that we just read that you may have breezed past when you first read it. I, I breezed past it several times, in my, many times in my life. And it's only recently kind of grabbed my attention. It comes in Romans 1.15. And this is what Paul says there. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. I'm eager to preach the gospel to you. Now that, that verse may come across to you a little bit strange. Because Paul is saying here, I want to come preach the gospel to you, and the you is Christians. It's people who already know the gospel. By definition, in order to become a Christian, you have to know and believe the gospel. And yet, Paul is not just like, I think I might do that. He's going, I'm eager. I'm willing to travel across the Roman Empire so I can come to you people who already know the gospel and preach the gospel to you. Why is that? Why is it that Paul wants to take them back to the beginning, why he wants to preach those things? It could be, because this is uh, one of the only churches in which Paul writes a letter to, maybe the only church he writes a letter to, in which he, that, that he did not start, that he, did not, that he was not acquainted with and did not know them. And so he wants to go and make sure they know the gospel. Like, I, I didn't share it with you. I wasn't around when you first heard it, so I'd love to come clarify it and make sure we're all on the same page. That, that could very well be. And, and I know people think that's part, of his, that's part of why Romans is written, to clarify the gospel. But that can't be the only reason why. Because he doesn't just do this with the Romans. Paul founded the church in Corinth. And he spent three years there, as long there as like anywhere else. He spent three years in Corinth. And yet when you go to uh, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, he preaches gospel truths to them a lot. And in fact, he says this in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 4. He says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And now he goes, all right, now I'm going to remind you. He says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And he'll go on from there. But this is a church that he spent three years with. He said that plenty to them. And he tells you, this was like priority number one for me when I told you. And now I'm going to tell you again. And it's not just Rome, it's not just Corinth. Many times in the New Testament, the authors will write to people who already know the gospel to tell them the gospel. Like in Ephesians verses, uh, chapter 2, verses 4-6, through six, Paul says this to them, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Peter does this too. 1 Peter 2, verses 24 to 25, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. For you were strained like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. So he's saying, you've already returned to Him. You were strained, but you've been healed. You've returned, and yet He still wants to tell them this. 
And then Titus 3, 3 through 8. This one I'm going to read is a tad longer. I don't apologize because this is one of my favorite texts. And I think this sums up so many key points of the gospel to us. It says this, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But... When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might be heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Those are some themes we're going to see a lot in the book of Romans. He's saying this, by the way, to Titus, one of his protégés, a church planter he's telling Titus this too and then we see this throughout the New Testament that the gospel is often proclaimed to Christians in fact I would I would argue half if not more than half of the times that the gospel is preached in the New Testament it's preached to people who already know it it's preached to people who've already heard it and received it this may seem odd to you because for many people they consider the gospel to be for unbelievers for non-christians The gospel is what you hear when you don't know Jesus yet. The gospel is what you hear to start off. You need to hear about this fact that you were made to know and love God and reflect Him, but you rebelled against Him and turned in sin, but now He has brought you back by the blood of Jesus. He has reconciled you. And so, as an unbeliever, you're supposed to hear that, or when you were a little kid, you heard that, and you respond to that, and then the idea is, now you're in. Now you know. Now let's get to work. And a lot of people from there on out go, now it's time to get deeper. Now I want to, I've heard the gospel, I know the gospel, now I want to stutter, I want to I get into theology now. I want to talk about the deep things of Scripture, or, or let's get practical now. Let's start talking about how to live our lives, and there are a lot of churches that go this way. We want you to hear the gospel, and now that you've heard it, let's start talking about how to have a good God-honoring marriage. Let's start talking about how to know God's will for your life. And we'll do sermon series on that. Let's start talking about how to manage your finances well. How to deal with stress and anxiety and those kinds of things. Let's get practical now that you know the truths that have brought you in. And it can be easy sometimes, I think, when you sit in a room like this and somebody starts to tell you pieces of the gospel to go, I've heard all this. Those of you guys who are Christians, those of you guys who follow Jesus, who've grown up in church, go, dude, I've heard this a million times. I, I, I know these things already. Let's get to the meat. Let's get to the deep stuff. But did you, did you catch the last verse of Titus 3, 3 through 8? Did you read verse 8 when it was up there? Here's what Paul says after proclaiming all these truths to Titus. He says, This saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Paul says this to Titus. Titus, you've got this new church in Crete that you're running. If you want these people there to grow up, If you want them to devote themselves to good things, then you insist on the teachings of the gospel over and over and over again. He actually says something really similar at the end of Romans, uh, the book of Romans. Go ahead and turn to Romans 16, if you will, real quick. This 
Some people have noted that Paul seems to almost kind of sandwich this book that, that the end of Romans kind of mirrors the beginning of Romans, which is kind of interesting. So I want to read just this one little phrase from 16 verse 25. Paul will end with this doxology, but he says, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. Okay, just that right there. That's all, I, that's all you need to catch. He's talking about God, God, now to God, and he describes God as this, the one who is able, that word able, it's not actually able, you know what it is? Dunamis. Now to the one who has the power to strengthen you by the gospel and by the preaching of Jesus Christ. That's what he says to them. So at the beginning of the book he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because of the power of salvation for all who believe. And then he closes and he says, let me remind you this, of the God who has the power to transform you and strengthen you by the gospel even now. That he will continue to do those things. This is what the gospel does. So here is my main point for this evening. This is the one thing, if you write anything, if you remember anything, it's this. You never outgrow the gospel. You never outgrow the gospel. I love the way John Piper, one of my favorite preachers, says it. He says, you never graduate to a course where the gospel is not the center of the curriculum. Or let me say it another way. You don't arrive at a place where you can now move on to deeper things. Here is the truth. All of my growth as a Christian centers around Christ crucified, Christ resurrected, Christ as the reigning king. Everything I am, everything that I want to know and grow in my knowledge and in my discipleship and in my transformation like Him centers around Christ crucified, Christ resurrected, Christ as the reigning King. It's not that we don't pursue depth or try to go deeper. Listen, if, if you didn't watch, listen to Scott talk and, and look at this thing up here, you, you know that we value going deeper. But here's the thing. It's not as though the gospel is the kiddie pool that you start in, and if you want to get deep, then you move to the big kid pool. No, no, no. The very pool that you got into at the beginning goes hundreds of feet deep, goes miles deep. And so if we're going to get deep, we only do that by going deeper into the truths of the gospel. And if we want to get practical, we only do that by exploring how the gospel flows out into our practical everyday lives. The truths of the gospel, how those things affect us in our everyday lives. We call this here at the table, gospel-centered life. So we've got our five things here. These are kind of our five values that we speak to a lot. These five things that we want to instill in you during your time at school. Number one on the list, gospel-centered life. Letting Jesus' work and identity shape every area of your life. That's how we define it. That every part of me gets defined by Christ crucified, Christ resurrected, Christ as the reigning King. So I want those things to, be shaping, to shape me and to do those things. Um, so here's the question though real quick. How does that work? How is it that the gospel, Paul says, is profitable and excellent for us? How does it profit us? to hear the gospel over and over again. Or, at the end, God, according to His gospel, has the power to strengthen you. How does God strengthen you by the gospel? How does it work that if you hear the gospel more, those things change you? I want to give you just three ways in which the gospel has the ability to strengthen us, profit us, change us. And, and we could honestly, we could probably list 40. I'm just going to talk about three real briefly and then we'll wrap up. The first is this. The gospel reminds us of who we are and who we are not. 
Let me start with who we're not. You are not the main character of the story. You are not the hero. You are not the protagonist. In fact, if anything, you're the antagonist. You're the villain. You're the bad guy. The main hero, Paul said it last week. I want to tell you my gospel concerning Jesus Christ. The center of the story of all the scriptures and of all of human history is found in Jesus Christ. It folds on Him. And so the story is not me, how do I, my, my story about how I pursue happiness and success in my life. What can I do to become the truest, fullest version of me, to find fulfillment? That's not what the story's about. And if you pursue that story as the world will tell you to over and over again, you'll find yourself at odds with the true story of history, going against the flow of it. The story is the story of a king who rightfully owns everything, and when it turned on him, left his own throne to bring it all back to himself. The story is the story of the true protagonist making you, the antagonist, his friend and his son or his daughter. And that's crazy. So it tells you who you're not, the main character, but it tells you who you are. Lost, undeserving, sinner, made righteous in God's sight, made a son or a daughter of the king. And that has the potential, by the way. You want to know one of the reasons why people are so stressed out all the time, why they're so anxious? Because if they're the center of the story, if they don't get everything right, then everything falls apart. But what if it's not all on you to have everything figured out? What if you're not the center of the story? What if your failure doesn't cause history to come unglued? What if the only person that the story centers around we know has it all together and he's going to succeed and win in the end? How does that release the burden off of me to not have to worry about those things? To not have to fret and freak out about every little decision of my life all the time. Second thing the gospel does, it defends us against shame and despair. One of the main names for Satan in the Bible is the accuser. The accuser of the brethren, the accuser of the believers. And this is one of his primary attacks is to lull you into temptation. To hold something out as though it is good and to tell you that this is normal and everybody does this. And the moment you grab a hold of that and find yourself in sin, then he then begins to bury you with guilt and shame. And tell you that what you did is so sick and so twisted. How could you ever call yourself a Christian? How could you ever claim that you actually know and love God if you're going to live like that? You know that feeling? When you, you have that thing that you find yourself running back to and you hate it and you feel awful every time you do it and so you swear you're not going to do it again and then you're alone on Friday night or you're with those certain set of friends on Friday night or you're with your boyfriend or your girlfriend on Saturday night and you find yourself going right back to that same thing and then you can barely sleep that night because you're so racked with pain and guilt and shame over all you've done. Part of what the devil does to us is lead us into sin, and we're wrong to go into our sin, but then heap shame and guilt on us. Who do you think you are? If only people knew your past. If only people knew what you did. One of the main authors, a guy by the name of Jerry Bridges, who began to bring this idea of the gospel being valuable for Christians to, to the world, he, he tells about the time when this became real to him, when he realized how much he needed the gospel as a Christian. It was in 1962, and he was serving overseas with the navigators. He was serving, doing missions work in another country. And he found himself in a period where he had fallen into deep, dark sin. And, uh, and he said that the enemy began to use that just to just pile onto him. 
and he began to feel these things, these thoughts in his mind. You call yourself a Christian. How in the world do you expect to minister to these people when you can't even keep your own life right? And wondering what to do with that. And it was in those moments when he began to, he said it was like I was at the bottom of the ocean and I needed a lifeline. I needed something to keep me alive. It was at that moment that truths of the gospel that he remembered from when he was younger began to come back to him. And he said this one particular verse, and it has become his favorite verse, he said. He's actually now passed on and died, but his, his favorite verse in his life came from Isaiah 53, verse 6. He called it his lifeline. He said, it's this verse, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned away everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And he would cling to that. Yes, I'm messed up. Yes, I've gone astray. Yes, I've done wrong things. Yes, I'm sinful, but... God has laid on Jesus all of my sins. And so I don't bear that anymore. I don't have to live in that shame and that guilt anymore. That's what remembering the gospel does to us. One more thing the gospel does. It changes our hearts. Here's the truth. We joke about this here. Some of the worst advice and most common advice ever given is follow your heart. All right? It's really dumb advice uh, because your heart's dumb a lot of times. Um, And it's also dumb advice because nobody has to tell you to do that. Here's the secret. You're going to do that every time anyway. It's just natural. We always do what we want to do. Every morning when you wake up, if you're a runner, you make the decision, would I rather sleep in or would I rather run? And you may think, well, I'm going to run even though my heart doesn't want to. No, no, no. If you choose to run, it's because your heart wants to be healthy wants to be fit more than it wants to rest. You're still going with what you want, even if it's sacrificial to you. Your heart always does what it wants. That's why Proverbs 4.23 says this, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. So we talked about that thing you do when you go back to that same sin over and over again that you hate, and you, you, you don't want to do it, and you swear this time it's going to be different, and I'm never going to do that again, and you go back to that same shameful thing again. You know why you do that? Because we chase what we love. Because you're going to do what you desire, because what your heart longs for, it runs after, and no amount of new information. You know if you do that, you're going to feel really bad, don't you? You know if you do that, that's going to hurt some of your relationships, don't you? New information alone can never do that. You need new desires. You need a new heart. And the gospel has the ability, first of all, to give us that new heart. We're going to talk a lot about that as we get into Romans 6 and 7 and 8, how the gospel gives us a new heart. But not only that, it gives us a new love. It gives us a new desire, something else to chase. If it's true that I'm not the main character, but instead the enemy, and yet the main character has lovingly chased me down and brought me onto his team in spite of me, if it's true that in spite of all I am and my shame that he has taken all my sin, all my iniquity on himself so I don't have to bear it anymore, those kinds of truths, when I can allow them to move past my brain and into my heart, those kinds of truths have the potential to change me because I start wanting to obey a king like that, because I start wanting to follow a savior like that, because I start wanting to live my life centered around a person like that. This is why we need the gospel. So then, how do we apply this to our lives? I I think you know. Read the gospel. 
preach the gospel to yourself every day. Come and study Romans and let this book, as it has changed so many people before, come and change your lives. Let me pray for that to happen in us this year, and then we'll wrap up. Dear God, thank you for the truths of the gospel more than we can even list. We, we haven't even, we're scratching the surface of some of the depth and the beauty of some of these truths. Lord, I pray this year that you would, that you would call these things to our mind as we study, that you would move them into our heart as we begin to seek after you and, and that the gospel would change us, change our hearts so that we would want more of you, we would love you. Um, Open our eyes by your Spirit. I ask you that in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, so we are wrapped up here. In 15 minutes, we will do our table group uh, meeting. So you can hang out for a little bit. Over here, we've got amazing cookies. If you have not gotten your picture taken to put up on our beam up here, we're trying to get as many as we can. So come get your picture. Grab a friend or two. Come get your picture. Let us give you some of the best chocolate chip cookies in the world. And then in 15 minutes, we'll gather up for our meeting. All right?